Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 15 of UCC's Talking Pictures podcast. I am your host Shannon and I am delighted to announce that today with me I have the director Lorcan Finnegan who is best known for Foxes Without Name, Vivarium and of course Nocebo which came out last year. I am delighted to have him here as he is one of Ireland's best horror directors at the moment and his work is incredibly original and thought-provoking so I suppose we'll hop into it straight away and I'm very excited to see what he has to say. So hi Lorcan, how are you getting on? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me on. And thanks for the nice intro. I suppose we'll start straight with it. So you started off doing graphic design in college before later yeah. moving into film. So you didn't have a traditional film education experience. What was it like moving into the film medium and why did you want to do that? Um, it wasn't really an intentional thing, to be honest. I was just, I studied graphic design. And when I was in college, I started doing kind of, we, we did like modules of like editing and a little bit of motion graphics. So I was putting together paint, like motion graphics pieces that had a kind of narrative structure on them. And then doing some projects that like, you know, were supposed to be maybe more print, but I did like some video stuff and I'd cut some, my dad had like a little um, handy cam. So I'd shoot some stuff and edit it together and, you know, I made like a fake trailer for a, for a film, for a college project and um, little stop motion things. And so it was kind of, I was, you know, I wasn't really supposed to be doing that stuff. I think they kind of got a bit annoyed with me and thought that I should be doing a different course. <laughs> but um, but anyway, when I finished, I sort of messed around with my friends as well, like shooting sketch stuff and editing it together. And then got a job in, um, like me and a mate of mine were watching a, a show called Innovations on UK Gold or something like that. It was like, anyway, it was like a fake infomercial sketch show written by this guy, Charlie Brooker, who now, you know, people know from Black Mirror and stuff. And I saw the credits coming up at the end, this company called Zepatron. And I wrote to them and I got like a job as a runner in their company in London. And um, we were making like comedy sketch stuff for mobile phones before the internet was on phones. So um, so I was shooting stuff and editing it and, you know, like no budget stuff, like maybe like 50 quid or something that they gave us. So then it was just kind of falling into it really. And then like I came home and me and Brunella did like a we'd made like a I'd made a sketch show with my friends called Lovely Show that I sent out to like RT and TV3 so anyway they were never going to go near it because it was it was mental stuff really but I did get a meeting with Jane Gogan from from TV3 and she said like oh what else you know have you got <laughs> and uh, I'd been watching like short films at the time online and proposed putting together like a a series of short films and music videos and animations from around the world and package it up into a show. So we ended up getting that commissions and uh, it's called Wonder Screen. I don't know how many people saw it, but it was on like late at night on, on TV3. And we did like 13 episodes, I think, half an hour long, like full of these short. Anyway, I watched so much stuff. I was kind of like, oh, short films. There's a whole, like, that's a thing that people do. Yeah, it was weird because even then I wasn't really thinking, oh, yeah, um, making films it was um just making stuff that I liked and then like I did some more of that kind of thing music videos and stuff and then some um ad agency people saw them on like YouTube was pretty new at the time so I was putting some of my stuff on YouTube because I didn't really you know a lot of people at the time had like short film distributors so like they'd give it to a short film distributor and basically never get seen by anybody ever again but I just put my stuff online and it got seen by people and then got some offers to pitch on tv commercials so i did a few of them and then um yeah then like 
I met Gareth Shanley at a Screen Ireland thing called Catalyst Project, where they brought over people from Denmark and stuff who made low budget films. And I met Gareth there, he was sitting beside me, and uh, I think we were both taking the piss out of whatever was going on. And um, we got on, and Gareth had written um, a, he had a blog, which he still still exists, called fugtheworld.blogspot.com, where he wrote like short stories and um just little kind of pieces and i used to read it, i thought it was like hilarious great stuff there and there's a short story called foxes which was set in a ghost estate it was kind of a first person story of like somebody sitting in a pub telling somebody something that had happened to one of their friends thought that could make a good short film so we we adapted it and developed it into a script and submitted it for signatures at screen ireland 60 70 grand or something like that which was pretty substantial and we got it and made that and it did well. And then, yeah, but at that stage, I was kind of like pretty focused on making uh, feature films because like to me, I, I mean, still, they seem like just very challenging projects, you know, to make a, to make a film is uh, a nice juicy task <laughs> to kind of get your head into and try and, do something interesting. So it was, it wasn't, it was never a kind of intentional path. It was just sort of happened and it's still happening basically. Yeah. Um, I want to ask on that because something I like asking people who come on this a lot is obviously they're taking a bit more of an unconventional career because obviously like film isn't always the most financially stable or that easy to be successful in. And I was thinking kind of how it ties to Vivarium because, you know, obviously that film is about sort of the issue of maybe, you know, just leading a very ordinary life getting married, having kids and kind of giving up the hopes and dreams you had when you were younger. And a lot of people don't follow those hopes and dreams because they have this fear. And I was wondering, like, did you ever feel that fear that like maybe I shouldn't go into a career that is as risky? I'm really interested because I feel like it's very hard to Mm. make that jump. So like, what did you think during that time when you were like, okay, I'm going to go into filmmaking now? That's the, it was really like, to me, it was sort of like conformity, not, not necessarily like, oh, I'm going to go and have a boring life, but just kind of conforming to societal norms or conforming to a kind of um, predetermined path. And, you know, which I think people do from exactly that, from like pressure from society, from their parents, from fear of financial security, all that kind of thing. But Personally, no, I was never more of a more interested in it in the sort of adventure side of of creativity. That job I had in um, in Zepatron in in London, uh, that's the only job I've actually had in the kind of creative world. I mean, I've worked as a chef and as a, a painter and a, you know uh, things like that. I'm talking about like painting walls, not. Oh, I was like an artist. Wow. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so like for me, but like I, I saw uh, friends go in that direction and was kind of surprised or I saw um, I saw a lot of people going that way. But, like, you know, I I have a kind of core group of friends that um, it's pretty rare. We've been friends since we were about five and a lot of us are all working in kind of in film or, um, you know, sound recordists or producers or designers or whatever so but we didn't go to college together or anything like that just happens I don't know we were sort of similar personalities growing up messing around and um, continued to kind of do that into being adults 
that's actually very unusual because for a second it's gonna be like oh the environment you're around might have encouraged you in there and then you're just like no we actually didn't go to college we just did it all on our own speaking about conformity as well is i want to talk about foxes because that's a fantastic short film and i was really intrigued about the ending for the character ellen because obviously the film is a horror film well i would say it fears more towards a horror than any other genre but her character ends up i think showcasing the wildness of humanity that kind of exists Mm. that, that we don't really acknowledge or that we kind of we grow out of a very young age but in a way her going back to nature I personally think it feels freeing for her just kind of to be with yeah. societal repression. Was that something you intended that her ending? Yeah, yeah, definitely. For her, yeah. It's like nature encroaching on this place that was like uniform and uh, concreted over. You know, we shot that down in Carlo in like a real ghost estate, you know, which there was, they were all over the country at the time, but we uh, looked all over the place trying to find like the right, the right one. And, um, you know, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere, like what would have been, you know, fields and forests and stuff like that. And they just, you know, flatten it all, build all these identical houses that go on for miles. And then expected people to commute from Dublin, mostly actually, to Carlo, to, to sleep in their house and then get up in the morning, drive back, go into work, work late, drive home, sleep, you know. And that was sort of um, right on the cusp of the you know, the crash in 2008 and all of that, it was sort of building up to that. Like we made that in 2000, we shot it in 2010, but we probably started thinking about it a bit earlier. Um, and I guess the actual repercussions of that whole crash didn't really hit until about 2009, 10, like when we started, you know, this place ended up being abandoned completely. And yeah, so it felt like there's Ellen was repressed in this place and she had like a creative background. She was a photographer and um, she used to find a kind of freedom in going around taking photos and stuff. And then she ends up in this sort of conform, conforming to this life with um, with her husband in this place, uh, isolated from society, uh, atomized. And then, you know, when she sees these foxes, she starts getting sucked into that twilight world and then eventually finds freedom by kind of rejoining the natural world or the twilight world or some sort of supernatural spiritual world so yeah definitely it was about finding freedom really even though it's kind of a hard film like um I know you use kind of um elements of Irish folklore a lot and I know you also use them um in Without Name and I wanted to ask was there like any specific Irish folklore that you like any stories any legends maybe a particular cycle a superstition that influenced the work in your films I mean I like them all like when I was growing up my dad was um the headmaster of school I went to and he was an English teacher and uh, he studied philosophy like I was uh, interested in like Greek myths Irish folklore legends stuff like that and he's from Monaghan um, and my mum's so the family are from Drogheda so like Andrada, you're around the Boyne, they totally thought they'd hear the Banshee and all that kind of stuff. I used to love those stories. And uh, in Monaghan, my gran, my granny said, like, you know, she'd be followed home by these kind of lights floating down the, the road. And, and, you know, these stories of people carrying, like, you know, a dried stick in their pockets in case, like, a badger bit you, you crack us. So <laughs> the badger thought you'd broken your leg. <laughs> like, great stuff. Um, But, like, they that was all like you know those stories became sort of pre-electricity so like 
in the darkness, um, people would hear sounds and then use their imagination to invent what, where those sounds came from and then the narrative behind the source of the sound. So they're like very imaginative, creative kind of rural stories, you know, and then they get passed, get passed along, people build upon them. And, but there are also, a lot of them are uh, using metaphor or using uh, these stories as a kind of a, as a warning against going down the wrong path, like literally and, and, <laughs> and metaphorically. So yeah, no, I always just find them them interesting, you know, Concerning without name, I feel like I'm sorry, I'm going to use you in this interview to answer like all of my personal questions. With yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm wondering for Eric, obviously, in the film, he kind of ends in like a, a physically catatonic state, but then he's kind of in astral form in the woods again as that figure that we see throughout the film. Speak a lot about like reconnecting to nature. Do you think that for him that was a positive ending where it's kind of like he's going back to the roots of this nature? Or do you think he's just going to look for someone else who does the same thing? and get them to take his place after yeah i think it was a bit of a a bit of a kind of a curse he's like a trap there on his own it's sort of we called it a bilocational fugue <laughs> uh, <laughs> where he's in two places simultaneously but for his character that sort of seemed just and what he kind of deserved the guy before him devoy had experimented with communicating with nature and the trees and all that kind of stuff and he ended up getting trapped in this place we sort of wanted to create like a like a mythology or folklore about these woods that had an entity that protected them and the way it did that was by trapping your soul in it and the only way to become free again was to trap somebody else and have them take your place and the only way for them to be able to get trapped is for them to start slipping into this weird state of communion with the natural world and then you know they could suck you in was the location actually difficult to shoot on because obviously it's forest or it's a woods there's so many variables of branches and all that or was it like production friendly yeah i really liked it like the weather was was great it was like huge storm there's a storm actually one night where like there was some they had to strap up um like lighting flags you know to cut the light or whatever behind the behind the house they're all strapped down but one of them we were like shooting a take with um with James Brown, who played Gus, who was like uh, walking Aracan with a dog or something. And then it was getting like really too windy to do it, really. And um, the flag kind of came loose from behind the house, flew over and went like straight by his head and stuck in the ground. And um, that's when it was, it was kind of called as like, OK, we got to go out here. Um, and then like the next day, it was like insane. Like there's a shot where Eric is walking towards, just walking through the field towards these big bank of trees all blowing and that was like um yeah got gale force winds um and the scene where it was like lashing rain where he is um the people are out looking for him in the woods and it's nighttime and sort of like a you know searchlight moving around and that was real rain because <laughs> we couldn't afford a range and it was just like absolute lashing rain so not everybody loved it, but I did, <laughs> being out in the elements. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. I feel the film is very reminiscent of uh, the Blair Witch Project with like the shots and like the time disparity and all that. But I assume that's more from Irish folklore because I say if you like if you've read Irish folklore, you know, there's a lot about going somewhere and you're ending up there for a couple of hundred mm -hmm. years. So it's really nice as like because I'd be a fan of folklore myself. So it's great to like see it on screen and be like, oh, I recognize this. It's really nice influence to see. And I think it's the same with Vivarium when you said you wanted to tie some Irish folklore into that. 
but um <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. they were not like fairies or something they, they, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a weird way moving on to very actually I want to ask about the casting process because obviously you worked with Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots and I know initially you had Mackenzie Davis before she moved on to other mm. projects but can you tell me what the casting process was like because obviously Imogen and Jesse are such well-established names especially Jesse with like being in DC being nominated for Oscars was a bit like wow I'm working with this caliber of actors for my second film yeah yeah well it was a bit of a process like it wasn't easy I was a bit naive as well in a way because like it's it's tricky when you're trying to do a film like I don't know what the budget was in the end around four million or something basically to do a film that's beyond like bigger basically than without name you need like if it's independent, you need a sales company that will uh, pre-sell the film to certain territories and you use that money to make the film and then you keep a few territories free to be able to sell it when it's finished. But in order to do that, they need certain names to be able to give you the figures that they expect to be able to sell to distributors. So you'll have like, you know, I'd wrote a list of people I'd, I'd love to be in it but then they're like no no yes yes no 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 yes yes no basically or like categorize them it's horrible like into a b's and c's on actors and that's where the whole kind of a-list thing comes from you know so yeah then like and I'd seen Mackenzie Davis in a film called Always Shine and then she was in uh, the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror yeah, yeah. which I thought was great and um I I thought she'd be she'd be brilliant so i we sent it to her by her agent and she really liked it. And then I went over to LA to meet her and uh, we hung out, went through the script and she had notes and everything. And then uh, Garrett wrote a draft for her with her notes. And you know that took a good while back and forth, back and forth. And then she wants us to stall to do a film and then we did and then she came back and then she said she got offered Terminator 6 or whatever it was and was like she, you know could you wait until for another like two years and then it was like no uh, we can't really like we really couldn't the money would just not be there anymore or anything we were like okay so <laughs> we've got no actors all over again uh, during all that period like some actors were unavailable when we'd first checked and then they, obviously some time had gone by that they were available and and Imogen Poots had gone off and done whatever she was doing and was available. So, and her agent had read the material and thought that she'd like it. So we sent it to her and she she did really like it. I met her in London. We got on very well. Um, then there was all sorts of, like Mackenzie was really tall. So then it was, we're trying to find someone that would kind of suit her the whole time, which was a whole other challenge. And, and then when, when Imogen came on, it was like it really freed it up. It was like, okay, great, somebody totally fresh and new. And and then I was having lunch with her, and we were talking about various guys for the role of Tom. And she suggested Jesse, and I hadn't actually initially thought of him because I'd been in the Mackenzie Davis world. I don't think they would have suited as a as a couple. And I was like, yeah, Jesse Eisenberg, interesting, kind of playing against type as like a gardener. And so she knew him. So she was like, I could just text him now and like send him the script. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so she was like, oh. um, and sent it. And then he he read it in like a couple of days and he loved it and wanted to meet. So when I was in New York and met him, 
Um, he just had a baby. We walked around Manhattan for the day. Uh, what he had his baby and his banner and his um buggy, and um we got on really well. So then he said yeah, and then we we're able to make the film. So it was the, that was the casting process. I mean, that was the beginning of the casting process. Then we had to cast all the other roles, obviously, but they were through more kind of traditional, you know, casting, casting director suggesting people um uh people self-taping like self-tape auditions then you know trying to find Sanon the kid to play the boy it's really tricky and then but when Sanon did his audition he was amazing he did like he went down low did the whole neck thing and he got really into it you know his mom was saying he was uh going around you know being in the supermarket shopping and he'd just be looking at people imitating their movements and being creepy and um but like the it was really tough finding like a guy like I was lucky with him he we actually found Sam pretty early on it was like you know the, kept on sort of seeing more people anyway just to be sure but it was like yeah you're never going to find anyone better than that um I want to ask as well just about the theory section again um I I'm, I'm so sorry I'm just using you as a yeah, go on yeah this is so Obviously, you know, the relationship between with Tom and Jenna with the boy is really strange throughout the entire film. And I was I know, obviously, either of them didn't want to be shoved into a maternal or paternal role. But do you think if they had raised the boy with like affection and love, if they had pretended mm. to do it, do you think he would have acted any differently to the different versions before him? Or yeah, I don't think it would have made any difference. To be honest. That's my opinion. Like some people. Yeah, I think people would like a big harsh thing oh if they just loved him it would have been different but i don't think so <laughs> but um, um he didn't really care like you know you could be nice to him it'd still just be the same thing it's like uh he's not human that was what we're trying to emphasize as well that like he looks like a human but he's not a human so um he has his own weird agenda you, you know it's incomprehensible what's going on in his mind which is frightening to me i think but what you said about Senin as well, um, just staring at people in shops, I would find that really terrifying after viewing that film and seeing him on screen. <laughs> to, to bump into him. <laughs> yeah. And be like, oh no, the actor's... Standing at the end of your bed in the morning. Yeah. Like being like, he's completely different in real life. And then you're just walking down a store and you're like, never mind. Yeah, like lovely, lovely kid. But then as soon as the camera's rolling, he just goes straight back into the character. And it's quite amazing. I mean, like I think kid actors are... Um, they don't have much else going on in their yeah. life in a way so they can really focus on what the they're going to do in this film you know it's not like an adult who has like all the other things that adults have going on um distractions so um he's very focused yeah yeah no he was he was absolutely fantastic like he was the all the casting was brilliant um i want to ask as well because vivarium really took on a life of its own with an audience after because if you look up online like there's videos of with millions of views discussing the film there's one I actually saw today and I was like it's like this uh YouTube channel and they're like oh how do you beat this film like how do you beat the monster and then it's just like how do you escape a very much like you can't I think it's like the only video mm. on the channel where they're like no you're, you actually can't beat it was there any fan theories that you came across if you read them that you really liked or any analysis that stood out to you yeah, I mean, I like them all. <laughs> They're funny, you know. Um, and I like that, you know, I love when a film is open to interpretation, you know. There's, like, my interpretation, but that doesn't mean it's the, it's the definitive interpretation. And it's a bit like, 
I remember being, you know, in school doing poetry or something, and I'd have like a completely different take on what the thing meant, and then get into trouble with the English teacher because like it was wrong. And you're like, yeah. I'm sure the poet would have loved that. Do you know what I mean? So like, I think I think it's great because it means that there's gaps there for their imagination to fill in things, you know, which is a bit like the origin of folklore in the first place. So. Now, there was a good one that I saw. I haven't seen them all, in fairness. Uh, I mean, at, at first I was, yeah, looking at stuff and then, yeah, there's the whole kind of subculture, you know, thing on Reddit and all weird strains of things that I haven't <laughs> got into. But um, again, I was, there was some theory that the whole thing is like a simulation or something, like computer game, which I get, but I'm not really into computer games. So um, I... I think if I was, maybe it, that would have been something that I might have thought about. But that, like, in computer games, you can obviously change. You know, things are just being rendered as you look at them and all that kind of thing. But there was a good video essay called um, The Horror of Nothingness or something like that, um, which I thought was interesting. It was just, like, the horror of banality, <laughs> which was kind of what we were going for. But also, like you say, you know, to me, it was kind of, it's kind of a, kind of funny that you know it's just it's the absurdity of of human human life cycle like if you just remove it a few steps from reality and examine it what we do yeah. it seems horrific and it seems completely absurd so there was definitely an element of the kind of absurdist comedy in my mind <laughs> but like but you know a lot of people hate the film as well you know hate mail every now and again what yeah totally yeah you have people going like you know fuck you you're fucking failing the shit you should fucking die and never make another movie oh again God. yeah it's very encouraging now <laughs> it was kind of a you know just after you finish making a film it's a, you do sort of take it to heart because you're like oh I'm just trying to make a film. but um now i realize that's actually i don't i really don't mind because some people really like it and if, if somebody really hates it it means it's done something to them you know um like when I was a kid, I watched Fitzgeraldo when I was about like 10 or something. I hate it. <laughs> it's like, why is he dragging the boat across the hills? Driving me mad. But like now I really like it. But um, it stuck with me. So I think if someone really hates it, it's better than it being, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, uh, it gets a reaction. But um, yeah. Okay. It's funny when see that was also the, the the interesting thing about doing a film with the uh, famous actors is that it takes on a different kind of life just based on the cast and different kind of distribution and it was also like a, it was released um during covid um I mean it was it, it did festivals and stuff and then it was supposed to be coming out first in France um and it came it did come out in France. It was in cinema for like two days before the cinemas closed down. And then about three days later, cinemas closed down in all over Europe. And then about a week later in America. And so it was supposed to have a big theatrical release, but that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like the perfect timing, like in the sense of well, like not for the cinemas, but in the sense that mm. you know, people were stuck at home, the characters were trapped in the film. Like it felt very like there's a real parallel. Yeah, yeah, there's a total parallel, yeah. And also, like, you know, Tom gets this mysterious cough. The food doesn't taste of anything. <laughs> oh, there's, like, yeah, there's tons of other weird parallels that people kept on asking about. Um, what did you know, Lorcan? What but, did you know before the rest of us? Well, it was very 
complicated process trying to release a pathogen uh, on time for the film's release, <laughs> working with the guys in Wuhan. Very committed, I like it. Yeah, just with regards to Nocebo, that came out last year, and it's a really fantastic film, a great commentary on neo-colonialism. And I was really interested because obviously you use the folklore from the Philippines and like how did that come about because obviously you have your own interest in Irish folklore was like there an intention to look for folklore from another culture for this film like was why was it the Philippines specifically that you wanted to go to the project started as a different story with a Filipino nanny as a background character and then we were kind of hitting you know, I don't know, there was, was something not really working with it. It was still that kind of, you know, it wasn't like a full screenplay yet. I think it was about 30 pages or so. I was actually still casting Bavarium because I remember getting off a Zoom with Mackenzie Davis and then I was in Australia, weirdly, and I, made, I called Garrett and I was talking to him about it. Maybe we should make Diana the like the Filipino nanny in the thing make it her story make it, it about her and then we started researching into that we started thinking more about placebos and placebos and the Filipino folk healing uses a lot of those elements still and it's quite like it's quite popular even since the Spanish colonized they've kind of always held on to their the traditional healing and I knew a little bit about that just from exploring sort of folklore in general so we kind of looked into it more and uh, there's the island of Cebu and the Visaya kind of region in general in the Philippines there's there's a, an island called Secahor where um, they have like annual festival of healers and people come from all around like different tribes and stuff and they they use a lot of indigenous healing stuff which is which is not necessarily that it doesn't work. See, the kind of the, the Western mindset is that, and the kind of capitalist mindset is if it, if you can't buy it and patent it and put it in a packet, then it doesn't have any value. But actually, placebos do actually have clinically proven positive results. So like, and that's where they do these tests, you know, but it, it's very difficult to kind of you know, patent a, a sugar pill and say, oh, it's, this does this, whatever. Um, so if you really believe, and, and like it's generally, it's this mind-body connection thing. I read this book called uh, Placebos and Placebos and the Mind-Body Connection. Actually, that was probably uh, part of why we ended up in the Philippines too. There was um, there was a story about the Hmong refugees after the Vietnam War that went from, went into the US as refugees. And in their culture, they had this, um, pressing spirit which is like you know the uh, the, the hag which we'd have or uh, in scotland which is like a weight on your chest some pressing down so in their culture if um if they're visited by this pressing spirit more than like a few times they'll die and um, but when it happens first they go oh shit this is happening to me i'll go to the i'll go to the local shaman and the shaman performs ritual uh, and because they believe in this since childhood, it takes weight off their mind and they feel much better and they think, okay, it's not going to happen again. And then they're fine. It's generally because of stress or trauma or whatever that it happens in the first place. So then the Vietnam War happens. Obviously, all these guys are, are fighting and, you know, see terrible things. And, and then they get refugee status in the U.S. 
um, and they're dispersed all over the country. They didn't want to ghettoize them. So they moved them all around the place and put them into um, like these Christian kind of houses. So they, and then they started having these nightmares and they couldn't go and visit a shaman because there are no shaman. And then they died. So like one by one, all these guys, I think it's about like, I think about 50 or 80 of them died across about a 10 year period or uh, maybe more. But anyway, this um, this medical anthropologist did uh, called Shelley Adler did a study on it. And basically her hypothesis throughout the, the book was that this has happened in the Philippines. It's happened in, um, they have something called Dob Sang or something like that. Something called the Pressing Spirits, the fat woman sits in her chest. It's a kind of global phenomenon that if your mind really believes something bad's going to happen to you, yeah, it can happen to you. So that and that can go. And yeah, they're a ratchet tribe. I think they're called in the Central Australia. Um, they had the bone pointing kind of ritual because um, they didn't believe in prisons. So that if, you know they they didn't have prisons. So if you did something terrible, you were sent to this shaman who pointed bone at you and, and you die because they grew up believing that. Yeah. Um, it actually work and like you know there's cases of people being turned up in, in hospitals in sydney and melbourne and stuff and um, nothing wrong with them that they can measure but they died like a couple of days later so that was sort of fascinating and that led us then to go and research that more so we got a little bit of development money and went to cebu me and gareth the writer and spent some time there visiting shamans and witch doctors and had loads of rituals performed on us and the same thing in me anymore. I feel better. I am better. <laughs> Therefore, you know, so, um, and then after that, we went to a, a co-production market in um, China, in um, Macau, that there was like a co-production market for like East meets West projects. And we were invited to pitch this. We went over there and pitched it to find uh, like co-production partners and partnered up with uh, a Filipino production company called Epic Media. And they came on board and we developed it further and blah, blah, blah. So it was, um, it was just a kind of an interest basically that uh, we followed all the way. And um, there were weird like similarities between Irish folklore and Filipino folklore. Like they have the thing of, you know, if you're lost in a forest, turn your coat inside out uh, to escape a fairy ring. We had the same thing. And they had a thing about like, you know, looking, if you want to see the true identity of somebody that you're talking to, if you think they're a witch or something, you look underneath your legs. They have the, if a spoon falls on the ground, you get a female visitor, I think ours is a fork. All these kind of things. And there's the similarities between us being uh, colonized by the British and then being colonized by the Spanish and their kind of uh, their folklore and their their kind of healing traditions being kind of pushed underground yeah. um, and their language and everything. So uh, there's all these kind of interesting similarities. So yeah, it was very exciting to see because I like I can't say I know much about uh, Philippine folklore myself, but I seeing online, um, I saw people said it was portrayed very accurately, which they said was unusual in terms of like the traditions and like the rituals and all that. So um, yeah, it just seems like you nailed it very well because I know people can't trust the internet on ev- on everything. But yeah, 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 yeah. But well, we had to, you know, obviously we were, I wasn't going to go and do film yeah. <laughs> just make it up. culture without making sure that it was all. Uh, 
you know accurate and that it was it was a cultural like the way we saw it was like it was a cultural collaboration between uh, Ireland and the Philippines you know uh, to try and make an interesting film basically I suppose moving on to your next film I don't know how much I can say about it because I yeah so just beforehand Lorcan mentioned to me that he's preparing a film that he will be shooting September called the surfer if i'm correct in australia can you tell us or can you tell yeah, us yeah okay yeah, pretty quick and anyway. like as goliath we we're supposed we we're actually also prepping goliath but that's um a kind of a bigger trickier film um that we'll be shooting next summer it's starting to cast that at the moment but there's like very complicated visual effects in it that um yeah. need a lot of uh planning and preparation and budgeting and all that kind of stuff and then there's this project called um, The Surfer that there's a writer called Thomas Martin that I met, uh, Irish writer that I met in Tribeca, the Tribeca Film Festival when I was showing Foxes there actually years ago. And it turned out he lived kind of around the corner from me at home. So um, we said, oh, we should do something together. And then I got busy, he got busy doing TV stuff. And then we kept on, you know, we, we tried to develop something before and then we didn't do it in the end because... I can't really even remember, but um, anyway, he sent me this kind of one pager outline for uh, a project called The Surfer, which is inspired by like real events in um, in California, but then obviously it ended up becoming something different um, about a guy who's basically trying to buy the home that he grew up in to kind of fix all of his problems and he is bringing his son out there to show him uh, show him the house and the best view is from the water he wants to like go surfing with his kid out in the water who's he's estranged from from his son and um these local surfers who are like basically you know wealthy hedge fund manager types prevent him from going surfing there and he becomes kind of obsessed with staying there um they steal the surfboard, blah, blah, blah. Any, things get uh, go from bad to way worse across the period of a few days. So it's all kind of, it's very contained. It's all set in like on beach, the car park and uh, the sort of woods around there. And um, I thought, yeah, it had a kind of, it was very intriguing, the the concept of it, uh, particularly such a kind of stripped back um, story in such a contained setting. Um, it's it's always challenging to sort of make a film like that, because, but it's also exciting because it's lots of opportunity. And so, yeah, we developed it further and um, we decided we'd do it quickly. <laughs> and um, we cast, uh, cast for a little while, but then um, Nick Cage, Nicholas Cage is basically doing it. Um, wow. And wow. So it's him, and we're, we're casting the rest of the roles now. It's like, uh, it all is very fast forward. It doesn't normally happen this quickly. Um, so yeah, I was out over in Australia then. It, it, basically I was inspired, you know, like when it, we could have done this in America maybe, but it felt more like an Australian yeah. movie. It felt more like, like I love the new wave Australian films in the seventies, Peter Weir and like picking a hanging rock and, um also nick rogues walkabout and there's a whole kind of you know there's a ton of ton, tons of great films like the the long weekend and the wake and fright and all those films um from that period i love so we decided to do a kind of modern 
contemporary take on one of those films set in Australia. I was over there a few weeks ago uh, scouting and uh, going back over in a, in a few weeks to start prepping and then we start shooting toward like late September. Wow, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And Nicolas Cage as well. Like that's, I mean. Oh, yeah, he's so <laughs> legend. <laughs> so it's pretty surreal. Lovely guy. And he's like really into this. And um, yeah, it should be interesting. Like it's uh, a little bit different. It's not, it's not a horror. It's uh, more of a psychological thriller or character study. It's a bit weird, but good. That, I no, <laughs> I, no, that sounds fantastic. I absolutely can't wait to see it. Like, I, I feel like it's going to be amazing anyways, but I, I do hope we get a few Nicolas Cage memes out of it because why yeah. not just to add to the collection? But yeah, guys, so you heard it here. The Surfer will be coming out, I assume, sometime in the next few years. He's going to be shooting it soon. Yeah, we're finished by next, uh, next summer. It'll be, it'll be made. Yeah, so go out and see it and also go watch Vivarium and Without Name and Nocebo and Foxes because if you don't, you are missing out. They are all amazing films. Just before we head off, I'm going to ask you one question, Morgan. What advice would you give to anyone at the moment? Could be a filmmaker, could be your younger self. What do you think the people need to hear? Like if you're interested in making stuff, I think you just go and make it. Just go and do it. Don't wait for someone to give you permission. And also just you know do what you want to do um with people who are into doing the same kind of thing um because it takes a while to even realize that you were doing fun stuff um when you look back on things and then you also realize it's it's how you actually got to do what you're doing now too so I just say uh go make stuff and also like you learn so much from every project collaborating with different people trying different things I think filmmaking is one of those things where you can't just it's it's a craft that you have to you know you don't get someone who's like really good at making furniture straight away they have to go <laughs> takes a while so um you've got to practice and um and in order to do that you just need to make stuff so I just encourage people to make stuff even if it's like one minute 30 seconds five minutes whatever yeah no I love that advice but um, yeah, that yeah. wraps us up for today. Larkin, thank you so much. You were um, amazing to speak to. I probably could ask you a million different things for hours about every film. Like I will be sending you a list and being like, so what does all of this mean? But <laughs> no, you were fantastic to have. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you. Thanks so much, Shannon. Thank you for coming and best of luck with shooting now. Thanks a million. All right, lovely to talk to you. See you, Shannon. Bye-bye.